Please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We'll be looking at only a couple of verses this evening. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. If you have your Trinity Psalter, please turn with me in your Trinity Psalter to the back on page 942. We've been going through the Westminster Larger Catechism, individual questions, a small selection of them. Tonight we're going to look at question 28, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 28, found on page 942. What are the punishments of sin in this world? The punishments of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes, and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. This evening I would like us to consider how sin is like a disease. I have had some family, friends, be diagnosed and ultimately die of ALS, which is a disease that attacks the nervous system, and it atrophies or weakens the muscles. Not that a diagnosis of ALS makes ALS any less horrible or painful, but like any other disease, a proper diagnosis helps to at least understand and digest some of the symptoms and the afflictions that someone goes through if they're suffering from ALS or another disease. The Westminster Larger Catechism gives us the symptoms of this disease. They're both inward and outward, as we just read. I would like us to consider the inward symptoms of this disease. That's first, I want us to consider two things. First, the inner symptoms of sin. But second, from our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, I would like us to consider how we are to have sympathy with one another. So first, from the Westminster Larger Catechism, how sin is like a disease, what are the symptoms? And second, how we should have sympathy for one another. So first, how sin is like a disease with certain symptoms. 
Now, when the Westminster Larger Catechism was being written by the divines, Westminster divines, I don't think that they had in mind believers when they were writing this particular question and answer. I think they were thinking about non-believers. But I would like to persuade you that some of these symptoms, there are six symptoms, can even be manifested in the life of a believer because we're not completely free of sin. Robert Murray McShane said that the seeds of every known sin are in my heart. I would add to that that the seeds of every known sin are in my wife's heart and in my children's heart and in your heart. And so when we gather together as a church, the seeds of every known sin are present here in our midst. The first symptom that the larger catechism lists is blindness of mind. In second, excuse me, second Corinthians first uh, four four, second Corinthians four four, Paul writes that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are blind in Matthew chapter twenty three. But interestingly, Jesus also tells his own disciples in Luke chapter 6, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his master, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Even those following Jesus may be blind of their own sin. David, another example, David, when he had murdered Uriah, he was blind for, of his, towards his own sin for a, a period of time. Nathan, the prophet, had to come to David and give him a parable. There was a rich man who had many sheep, and there was a poor man who had only one sheep, and the rich man took the poor man's sheep. David becomes outraged, and Nathan says, you are that man. And finally, David sees his own sin. The first symptom, symptom is blindness of mind, but the second symptom is hardness of heart. If you think about Pharaoh, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 7. But also, the book of Psalms, Psalm 95, says this, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament uses the same psalm saying, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Mark chapter 8, verses 17 through 21, Jesus rebukes his own disciples, those who are following after Jesus, saying this, why are you, this was after he had fed the 4,000, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? The third symptom is a reprobate sense. Now, when the Westminster Divines wrote that, I think they had in mind non-believers who had an expectation of judgment. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14 says this, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us 
can dwell with everlasting burnings. If you are a believer in Christ, you do not have to fear God's judgment, ultimate judgment. The reality is that people sometimes struggle with assurance of their faith. But John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, that whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Therefore, I would encourage you to walk with God and seek to be assured of your own salvation. People can have a fearful expectation of judgment, particularly non-believers, but even believers can struggle in their own life with guilt. The fourth symptom is horror of conscience. Shakespeare's Macbeth is an interesting example when Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, murder the King Duncan. Lady Macbeth has these terrible visions, and one of the visions she has is she has blood-stained hands. She gets up to try to wash her hands. Physically, she's washing her hands, trying to wash off this spot, and she's saying, out, spot, out, as if she could cleanse her guilt by simply cleansing her own hands. Perhaps the best illustration in the New Testament we have of the horror of conscience comes from Judas. In Matthew chapter 27, Judas, when Judas, it says this, verses 3 through 5, when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. Horror of conscience. Now that example is an interesting one because Judas's horror is contrasted with other people who have guilt, the chief priests and the scribes. They have, excuse me, the elders, they have guilt as well, but they don't have a horror of conscience. And so a numbing of your conscience can also be a symptom of the disease. It's not listed in the Westminster Larger Catechism, but you can have a numb conscience that doesn't feel the weight of what you've done. Strong delusions, that's the fifth symptom. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, King Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. If you remember, they have appointed David to play the harp, and Saul is deluded into thinking that David is trying to steal the throne from him. Saul throws a spear at David twice to try to kill him because he's delusional. In the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, the people have been brought out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they say this to Moses. The people of Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to die, or to kill, uh, in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. There were no meat pots in Egypt. There were no bread to the full in Egypt. These wandering Israelites were being deluded. The fifth symptom, excuse me, the sixth symptom. So we, we have six symptoms 
The first, blindness of mind. Second, hardness of heart. Third, reprobate sense. Fourth, horror of conscience. Five, strong delusions. And finally, six, vile affections. Vile affections. When the divines wrote that, I believe they were thinking of Romans chapter 1, verse 26, that says, God gave them up, speaking of non-believers, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Vile affections could mean sexual perversions, but it also might mean other things. In my opinion, it could also mean Achan in Joshua chapter 7, if you remember Jericho, had been destroyed, and Achan longed for the spoils of war, and he stole some of the spoils of war in Joshua chapter 7. Why do I take you through all of these symptoms? For a number of reasons. Not that, not to dismiss sin in any way, not to make light of sin in any way, because we are called to mortify sin, It is not to excuse sin in any way. We are called to follow Jesus and to put to death through the Holy Spirit and the work of the means of grace. We are to put to death the sin that is within us. But the reason I bring this up is because the church is a place where we're all together saved by grace. And there is more or less sin in our life. We're not completely free of the presence of sin. The penalty of sin has been brought down upon Christ, but we're not free from the presence of sin. If we could smell the, the sin around us or even in our own life, I'm convinced that even among the purest saints, we would still smell pretty bad. Have you ever been around somebody who has body odor and they can't seem to smell it, and uh, they have to be told to put on deodorant. If there was somehow that we could put on some spiritual deodorant and make ourselves smell better, that might work. But that's not the remedy. In general, there are two reactions to being around sin. Because when we come together in church, most likely what will happen over time is that you will begin to have relationships, and you will begin to find Sinners among you. You might be one of them. You are one of them. And what do you do in that situation? Well, one reaction is to confront the sin. One reaction is to confront the sin. And there are times and places when it is appropriate to confront the sin. And there's a process. Matthew chapter 18, if you were here for Sunday school a number of months ago, I actually did a series or a a lesson on Matthew chapter 18 in confronting people about sin. One tendency is to confront or even to be judgmental. But here's another, another reaction, and it's the one of 1 Peter chapter 3. And granted, Peter may or may not have in mind dealing with other people who are, particularly their sin, but another reaction is simply to be sympathetic. That's the word I would like us to consider from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What is sympathy? 
I was pleasantly surprised when I was reading my Greek lexicon. I assumed that sympathy was a conjunction of two different words. You might say sim as a prefix for with. And I thought the other one would be pathos, which is feeling. In English, when we say sympathy, we generally mean that you are feeling with someone else. Sim, with, pathos, feeling. Now, we are called to feel with one another as Christians, but I was surprised to learn that the root word of sympathy in this passage is not pathos, but is paskos, which means suffering. In other words, we are to suffer with one another. Now, what Peter is not saying is that we are to sin with other people. We're not to do that. But one of the cross-references that the lexicon gave was Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. If you remember Jesus coming to Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11, what does he do? Mary and Martha are weeping. Uh, They're mourning the loss of Lazarus. And there's that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Great memory verse, by the way, if you ever want to impress someone with a memory verse. Jesus wept. But Jesus is being sympathetic. He's entering into the suffering of other people. He's entering into their feeling, to feeling with. He even becomes angry at death in John chapter 11. We are called to be sympathetic. In the previous chapter, chapter 2, Peter says this in verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. If you think about the priests of the Old Covenant, Unlike the kings who ruled over the people or the prophets who spoke God's word, brought the word of God to the people, the priests were involved in the messy details of people's lives. They represented people before God. They offered an offering for the sins of the people. It was, in my opinion, a more gritty job, more messy job than being a prophet or a king. We, too, are to bear with one another as priests, smaller smaller p priests. Our great priest, the Lord Jesus, made a final atonement for sin. We don't offer a sacrifice for our sins, but we do bear with one another. As Peter says in the next chapter, that love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. When we come to church, we are probably surrounded by a multitude of sins, a multitude of sinners as well. But love covers a multitude of sins. And I am of the opinion that while we do confront sin, most of the time, this is my opinion, I would seek to back it up, I'll tell you the scripture references, most of the time we seek to overlook the offense, if someone offends us, we seek to overlook that insofar as we are able. There may be grievous sins in which we must confront, but by and large, we overlook. In Proverbs chapter 19, it says that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says that whoever covers an offense seeks love. 
but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. We are to overlook one of the, the offenses of one another. Or perhaps I could use the example of Paul. When Paul was writing Philippians, he wrote this, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Does Paul seek to get angry and to get even with the people who are seeking to afflict him in prison? No, he says this, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul overlooked an offense, and we should too. I would like to read a quote from John, excuse me, not John Owen, he's going to be cited, but Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson had a a week-long series recently about how sin makes us bent out of shape, but Christ bends our souls back in shape. That was literally the words he used. He used souls that were bent out of shape and souls that needed to be reshaped. Here's what he says about people's soul shape. And people's sins. We've got a, we have a common disease, the same basic distortion, but it shapes itself individually. I want to protect us from falling into the temptation of being judgmental about the frailties and the weaknesses of others. Then he quotes John Owen. John Owen wrote this, You don't measure someone's spiritual growth by the height that they seem to have attained, but by the distance they've had to travel and the obstacles they've had to overcome to arrive at where they are today. Sinclair Ferguson goes on, I often think about that. I see people who really don't seem to be very tall spiritually, at least certainly not when compared with others. Some of them seem to be in so much need at times. They need encouragement. They almost seem to limp along while others walk or easily or even run. But then you discover their background, the damage that's been inflicted on them by others, the few privileges they've had to help them. They seem to be the little people. But we've not taken into account the tremendous obstacles that they've experienced and overcome. The truth may well be that they've grown far more than we have, even even if to all appearances they have not reached the height that we think we have attained. But nothing is hidden from the eyes of our Savior. And he sees, hidden in the inner soul shape of these so-called little people, a development of spiritual graces that's been far greater than ours, perhaps because, by his grace, they've overcome tremendous obstacles. He ends this way, Don't measure someone else's soul shape or spiritual growth by how tall they seem to be, but learn the obstacles they've overcome, and then I think you'll really be in a position to appreciate them. My soul was delighted to hear that because I think it gets to the heart of how we are to interact with one another as Christians. We suffer from a common disease, sin, and it manifests itself in many different symptoms. Yes, we are to treat sin seriously in our own life, and yes, there are times when we must confront it in the lives of other people. But by and large, we are not to 
judge someone's spiritual growth by everything that we see in their life. There may be things in their life that we don't see. Here's what I mean by that. Here's an example. I hope it's clarifying. Imagine a a man and a woman. This man had been born into a solid home, a Reformed Presbyterian parents. Perhaps his father was a Presbyterian minister and Presbyterian professor at an established seminary like Reformed Theological Seminary. He had raised his son to understand Scripture, to read it daily, to memorize it, to know the confession, to know the catechisms, to know all the ins and outs of all the details of Scripture. And this man grows up to be a pastor, professor, even maybe like his own father. But then contrast him with, say, someone who is born into non-believing parents, to a household in which the parents struggled with sin in their own life, did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps split up or abandoned the child, and later on this woman was converted. She doesn't know much about the Bible. She doesn't know too much about the Reformed faith and understanding of Scripture, but she's learning. It's very tempting to see those two people and say, well, that first person, look how spiritually, how far they've grown. And to look at the, the second person and say, they're really just this little, a little people. It's a little person. But we don't really know all the different obstacles that that woman had to face. And I'm not suggesting that we must treat them the exact same. We should not. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is we need to be careful about judging people given we don't all come from the same background. That's why we are to be sympathetic, to feel with one another, to have brotherly love and a tender heart. Remember, too, that Christ, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he himself was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. That means that Christ is concerned for us as a great high priest. He's concerned when we are hungry or tempted or troubled. Christ, as our priest, is able to relieve us of suffering, to keep us and rescue us from temptation. Only Christ is able to do that because he himself has gone through it. Christ understands our experience and knows temptation. He never yielded to temptation. He never fell into it. But he understands what it is like to be human because he had a human nature. He was tempted. Therefore, when we enter into fellowship with one another, as smaller p priests, we are to love one another as Christ loved us. Christ forgave you if you believe in him of a mountain of sin, and he went to the cross to undergo the penalty for your sin, the wrath of God. Therefore, knowing how much and how great you have been forgiven, so you also ought to love one another, to sympathize with one another, and to care for one another, not to dismiss sin, not to treat it lightly in yourself or in other people, But by the grace of God, perhaps, 
In some cases, you are called to look past it in other, other people, to love the person behind the sin, to sympathize with that person, to pray for the relief of that person, to pray that God would bring them to repentance of their own sin, to conviction of their own sin, and to seek to love them as Christ has loved you. Let us love one another as Christ has loved us. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you and praise you that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. We thank you that we have one who has been tempted in every respect as we have yet without sin. We confess that there are many different symptoms and manifestations of this disease that we call sin. We desire for it to be mortified in our life. We pray through your spirit that you would crucify the sin within. May we be faithful to the ordinary means of grace, the word of God, sacraments, and prayer, that we might grow up into maturity. In the meantime, as we do that, Father, please help us not to be judgmental towards people who are different and come from a variety of different backgrounds. Help us not to treat everyone the exact same, but give us, Lord, sympathy. Help us to know how. Give us wisdom when we interact with other people to know how we ought to love them. And if we do see sins or offenses that we are able to overlook, I pray that you would help us to have sympathy, to pray for that person or people, that they too might be brought to conviction of sin and repentance and grow in the faith. We pray too that others would be brought into this fellowship who don't know you, that they too might know the joy of repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin, that your kingdom would be full and that all your chosen race, Lord, would be brought into the fold that we would love one another as Christ loved us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.